other name but the name that is Jesus. He who was and still is and will be through it all. So come what may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning, I know I will never be alone. in you and your name that uh, now as we open up your word Lord that you would speak to us again meet us here now in this place Lord in Jesus name we pray amen all right you may be seated youth group you guys are staying here this Sunday so glad to be here once again it's um it's it's uh it's a message that I've been kind of laboring and working through and really just been on my heart. Uh, it's, it was fun first service to kind of bring it to the light. Um, Alistair Begg would say it was, um, it's the closest he's ever felt to being pregnant and giving birth is, is you, you, and I, I hope that's not offending, but it's this thing that for me, it's, it's just, it, it, it wells up and it's growing and then it's, and it's, it's, it's amazing to see how it comes out. So I, I pray just today's uh, just a blessing. Um, my, my brother and I growing up, and I know I've sto- told a story in the past that wasn't true about the poison, if you're here for that one. This is, a, this is actually a true story. So let me tell you about this. Um, my, um, my brother and I, we, we had a lot of hobbies. We, we were always interested in trying to, we were always inquisitive about different things. So we would, um, hobbies would pop up. We'd see something on TV or um, in a book, and we're like, wow, we want to know more about this. So my mom, uh, she would always, she'd just take us to the library, and we'd go look up whatever we wanted to. And it was fun to be able to research these things. And archery was one of those things. I don't know where we inherited it from, but we found this uh, red fiberglass recurve bow. And my brother and I wanted to know everything about archery and we wanted to find out more. So that's what we did. Went to the, the, the library, got all the books and began reading, studying. Okay, how, this is how you do it. Well, we also made a, a, um, a range in our backyard. And uh, we, we found, the, I don't know why we had just a random closet door, those kind of hollow core doors, and we, we set it up in our backyard as a target. And of course, boys, what do you want to do? You want to shoot at something real. So we set up, we drew an outline of a person like this on that door, and that was our target. Um, and then after a while, that just that stagnant target, we decided that, well, let's, let's make this a little more realistic because when you shoot something, it needs to die. So we tried to like prop up the door in a way that, uh, you know, a little stick or something would hold it. Then when, you sh- when it gets shot with the arrow, it'd fall over, be a little more realistic. Well, um, that didn't work out too well. So we decided, well, the best thing is probably just to hold the door up. And um, you can't stand behind the door because every once in a while the arrow will go th- straight through the door, you know. And so my brother and I, well, we, we just, we, you know, held it at arm's length. We'll be okay. And we were. My brother and I were really, we, we were good. We, we, were, we, had good, we were good shots, you know. Um, we had a lot of practice. Once in a while our friend Mikey would come over and he'd, he'd practice with us too, but he wasn't, he just hadn't been practicing as long. So 
It wasn't as good. Well, uh, it was the 90s, and uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out, uh, and uh, we, we've loved that show. We love that movie. Um, especially because there was archery in it. And um, there was one scene where Robin Hood, he draws his arrow and he flips around and he, and he shoots. And I think it was like through the trees or something. It was like this really cool movie shot. And uh, hits his target. So my brother and I are like, yes, we can do this. So we're in the backyard practicing and um, we, we started working on our Robin Hood shot. You know, you turn around real fast, let the arrow go, it hits its target. Because my brother and I, were, we were decent. We were good. We were practice up. Well, Mikey came over that day, and he's like, well, I want to try this, too. I've seen this in the movies. I, I can do this, too. Well, my brother was, it was his turn to hold the, the door, the target. And so he's kind of holding it at arm's length like this. And Mikey turns around, flips around, releases the arrow, and it nicks the edge of the door and goes, dunk, in my brother's arm. So I have this image of my brother going, ah, as the arrow's flopping around in his arm. And um, we're like, Brian, you can't tell mom and dad. And, he's like, and, he, and my brother, who has like the highest pain tolerance, um, he, he's like, no, it hurts. Got to tell mom and dad. I'm like, no, you know, you can't. Like, we'll get in so big trouble. Because we had really, really wanted to get uh, the broadheads, those like arrows with the razors on it. We thought that would be really cool to have those. My mom had said no, so I'm really glad she said no. So I was like, okay, I'm the oldest here. I'm the, uh, I, I will be the one to deliver the news to my parents. So I run around our backyard slide open the sliding glass door, and my dad's there sitting on, on the couch reading his newspaper. And I'm like, Brian's been shot. And my dad looks up the newspaper, and he's like, is the BB still in him? I'm like, no, it's the arrow. And he, he lost his color for a split second, only to jump up, straight arm me through the, the, the door. I, I was standing in the door just waiting for his response. He straight arms me, runs around the backyard, picks up my brother, lifts him up, and then carries him into the house. So that's, these are these images that are just stuck in my head. Well, fast forward to a few months, and um, I decided that I think I've matured a little bit that I won't that I know my targets now, and so I've decided to, I, got, I, got a, I was able to buy a compound bow, all right? And that's, that was pretty exciting. I've been talking about it for a number of years. In fact, my middle daughter, her name is Posey Archer. So you can calculate her age and how, many, how long I've wanted to get back into archery. So I got this compound bow, and um, uh, the guys at Central Coast Archery have just become like my best friends. I've, I've been down there, I've taught a lot. They're like, teach me, okay, this is your target, don't you know, all the safety, all that stuff. But I've been learning a lot. And so I have a little bit of background as a kid in archery, but I, I, I realize I need to relearn a lot. And uh, that's what I want to do with this morning. You see, um, growing up in the church, I think there's a, there's a familiar, it, it's wonderful. Um, it, it has way more advantages than disadvantages. But I think one of the disadvantages for growing up in the church is you begin to be really familiar with the Bible. And it becomes something that you just know. Um, I remember in high school thinking, well, I know everything about the Bible. I know about Noah. I mean, it, just, it, was just, it just became like I know about it. But for those who have been able to walk with this in their, in their new life of faith and their new trust of Jesus, having come from a, not a biblical background, um, I've seen this awe and wonder and just a refreshing like, whoa, what is the Bible teaching? What is it? And so that's why I want to approach this morning's scripture of Luke chapter 11. It's a prayer that I know we've all maybe memorized, that we've all looked at, but let's this morning look at it with just that fresh sense of, of, of vision this morning. So Luke chapter 11 will be in uh, verses one and two this morning. Um, sometimes it's, 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 um, it's been titled the Lord's Prayer. Some, I, I, I don't agree with that because of later on, um, um, but uh, we, we'll call it the model prayer or the disciples prayer, the, the believer's prayer. But Luke 11, there's some Bibles in the back if you want one of those. I love, my youth group will say, no, I love hearing the Bible's turn. Uh, it's, it's my favorite sound. So um, Luke chapter 11, verse one says, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, speaking about Jesus and he's praying, and that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. For the, the Jew living in that 
culture, in that context, prayer was just a central part of what you did throughout the day. It was what you did first thing when you woke up. It was what you did right before you went to bed. It was just throughout the day, you just had these prayers and you just, it, it was just central in the life. But yet the disciples, they realized, they witnessed something different in Jesus when he prayed. And they waited for him to stop, and then they approached him with a request. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I find it interesting that they didn't say, Lord, uh, um, they didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. Jesus was a powerful preacher. He preached with authority. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to heal like you do. It's, wow, these things that you're doing, it's amazing. They didn't say, they didn't ask the question, Lord, teach us how to pray. They just said, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something remarkably different about the way that Jesus prayed, and the disciples noticed that. And you see, we often ask the best of what someone has to offer. We ask the best of what someone has to offer. If I wanna know about golf, then I go ask, you'd, you'd wanna seek out a professional golf player. As I've, archery has become one of my new hobbies, one of my new interests, I'm at Central Coast Archery probably way more than I should be. Scott, Joel, what about this, what about that? Hey, can you look at my bow, is it tuned right, is everything okay? And they are, they're world-class archers, they're best of the best. Uh, Scott's been a worldwide archer, he's a, um, they have a gal that's, I think, just graduated high school that's shot for the women's Olympic team there. Like, they know what they're doing. They are world-class, so we want to ask the best of what someone has to offer. And the j- disciples witnessed in Jesus that his vibrant prayer life was something special. It was the best of what he had to offer, and so they asked him. Now, this prayer that we find in Luke chapter 11 is also found in, in the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter six, that was part of his sermon as he preached on this prayer. And that prayer was given before Jesus' disciples were all there. At that time, there was only about four disciples with him. It was Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And uh, now Jesus is gonna reteach it to all of his disciples. And so he says to them, when you pray, say this. He's not gonna define prayer. Prayer was already defined in the life of the Jew. We would define it as talking to God. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Jesus walked, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the Garden of Eden. When you walk with somebody, when that relationship is there, you walk and you talk and you share life. And talking with God, prayer is just that same thing. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus would give warnings about prayers shouldn't be like, because there was a lot of bad examples out there. So this is what prayers uh, shouldn't be like. In Matthew chapter six, he says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that, with, that, for they, think that they will be heard for their many words. It's not about how many words we use. Jesus doesn't then teach them on the posture of prayer, you know, being in the church and the Sunday school, you're taught, okay, when you pray, you gotta put your hands together, you gotta close your eyes and bow your head. That's what you have to do. And I love that prayer because it keeps kids from being distracted, right? And sometimes me, that's what I need. That's the prayer posture that I need. I need to bow my head, close my eyes, and put my hands together. But that doesn't always work because the Bible also says in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. So if I'm supposed to only pray this way and pray without ceasing. The joke is we get in my car uh, to drive, you know, go visit the cousins, and I said, all right, girls, we're gonna pray before we go. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And, you know, as we're driving down the street, and they're like, Dad, don't close your eyes, don't do it. You know, you, you trick them. And I, I guess that would only work if you had a Tesla. Then you could actually bow your head, close your eyes, and trust uh, in the machinery. So scripture gives us many different ways. Sometimes we are called to bow the head. Sometimes we're called to look up in the sky as Jesus would do up to the heavens. Um, there's definitely many different postures. Sometimes you can go in a prayer closet. There's many, many ways of the external posture of prayer. But what uh, the most important posture of prayer is that which the heart's posture of prayer. Can you agree with that? Amen. Our heart's posture of prayer. And Jesus teaches just that in this prayer. In that prayer that he 
that the disciples were watching him at, do and, and um, it doesn't seem it's that the, the prayer was recorded. It doesn't say if it was a short prayer. It doesn't say if it was a long prayer. Um, it, it doesn't seem how simple or elaborate. It just, that prayer that the disciples watched that Jesus did made an impact on his disciples and they knew that it was making a kingdom impact. Sometimes it's the simplest of prayers. George Mueller, have you, have you all heard of George Mueller? Um, Great, great man of faith, great, great man of, of God. And, and this story was related by another um, well-known evangelist named Charles Ingalls on the prayer life of George Mueller. So Charles Engel, Ingalls, is, um, he was crossing over to America and he was uh, recounting this story of how um, he met this, this captain of a steamer, and he was saying, wow, this man, this captain is just, he's a man of faith. There's something different in this man. And he, so he began to ask this, this captain of the steamer, what, what, marks, what, what, what marks the life of your faith? What, what, what is this about you that's so different? And he said, well, this is what happened five weeks ago. Let me share a story from you about five weeks ago. He said, it was the most incredible thing um, he was saying that the captain said that I have, um, he was there, sorry, collect my thoughts. He was there at the helm, this captain of the steamer. He was crossing over from in the Atlantic by the Newfoundland coast. There had been 22 hours of fog, unrelentless, thick, thick fog. So much fog that he hadn't left the bridge in 22 hours. And all of a sudden he feels a tap on his shoulder. And he turns around kind of frightened and there is George Mueller. And George Mueller simply says this. He said, Captain, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. And it was Wednesday on that day. The captain says, that's impossible. George Mueller replies, very well. If your ship can't take me, God will find some other means of locomotion to take me. I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. George Mueller said, let's go down to the chart room and pray. The captain said, uh, captain said, I looked at this man as, and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could this man have come from? I've never heard of such a thing. Leave the bridge, go down to the chart room to pray like that prayer is going to make anything different? The captain said, Mr. Mueller, do you not know how dense this fog is? Mr. Mueller replied with, George Mueller said, no, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance in my life. The captain said, well, he went down to his knees and he prayed one of the most simplest of prayers. He said, I thought to myself, that would suit a child's class where the children were not more than eight or nine years old. His prayer was basically saying, oh Lord, if it is consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec is this Saturday and I believe it is your will. That was his prayer. The captain said, when we had finished, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. He said, sir, first, you do not believe that God will do it, and second, I believe he's already done it. There's no need for you to pray about it. I looked at him, and George Mueller said this, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and I, there's never been a single day with which I have not gained his audience. Captain, get up, open the door, and you'll find the fog is gone. The captain got up, the fog was gone, and George Mueller made it to his appointment. What a, what, a, what a mark of faith to have a simple prayer of faith, a simple believing faith in the God who did that. Prayer changes us and it prayer changes around us. Jesus didn't see the preparation for the prayer as the preparation for the battle. Jesus saw prayer as the battle. As Jesus was in the garden um, of Gethsemane, right leading up to his betrayal, he bled great drops of blood, recorded in Luke 22. And he prayed and he said, Lord, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't pray, he didn't bleed in Pilate's court as he's being tried, but he bled in the garden in prayer. Jesus didn't see that prayer was a preparation for a battle. Jesus saw prayer as the battle. So Jesus, after teaching us uh, to pray, he, he tells us how we address God when we pray to him. 
And this is what he says to his disciples. He says, our Father in heaven. That's how he starts his prayer. Our Father in heaven. When you say Father, that brings up a lot of thoughts about our own earthly fathers. But yet Jesus tells us that Father is the most important way, the most important thing when approaching God. And that word Father has a lot of connotation. In the Old Testament, it's only used seven times about God. It was a very old, the Old Testament, they, they saw, they witnessed God in a very different aspect. But you're now Jesus is telling his disciples, when you pray, say, Father. 275 times, actually, in the New Testament. See, God uses many names in the scripture, but Father, I think, is one of the most intimate of names that we can call our Heavenly Father. We can call God. There's a picture on my desk, and it was a good reminder this week as, as I'm studying and praying and working through this, is, uh, it's, my, it's, it's me six days old just on, the, on, the, on, my, my, dad, on my dad's chest. Just that simple, like, I, I am in need of everything. I have, can't control anything, and there's my father with me on his bosom. So often our view of God is shaped by our earthly fathers. Just like my dad picking up my brother after he'd been injured by that arrow, carrying him to safety. He carried him into the house and um, my, my mom wants to always treat everything with a bag of ice, right? Isn't that the way moms tr- treat best wounds? She put, on his, she put on his arm a bag of ice and hoped that would help it. You know, he just had a little hole in the skin. It didn't go all the way through. And um, a couple weeks later, my mom grabbed my brother and, you know, hey, come do this, come do that. And he flinched and he was like, ouch. My mom's like, oh no, does it still hurt? He's like, yeah, it still really hurts. So she took him to, the, you know, took him to the, the, her doctor, his doctor. And uh, the doctor's like, ooh, well, let's, let's look at the x-ray. Let's check out the x-ray. So they get the x-rays. And of course, my mom was so embarrassed to have to take my brother to the hospital because he was shot by an arrow. That was like just... She did not, she was avoiding it probably because of that. And she takes him to the hospital, or takes him to the doctor, and um, sure enough, the x ray reveals there's a hole right there in the middle of his, his bone with little fractures going out. And my mom thought that was the worst news. She could not believe. She was so ashamed. And the doctor's like, That is, this is the coolest x ray I've ever seen. This is like the cowboy in Indian days. He was all fired up. My mom was so embarrassed. My dad carried my brother to safety. On on that aspect of asking others what's the best they have to offer, C.S. Lewis, who I think we would all agree is one of the best authors out there, he looked and he spoke about his favorite author, another George, a a guy named George MacDonald, the, the Scottish writer. And he said this in his like opening to his book about George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, we have learned from Freud and others about the distortions in characters and errors of thoughts which result from man's early conflicts from his father. Freud has a lot to say about fatherhood and how that shapes and molds us. He said, far from the most important thing we can know about George MacDonald is that his whole life illustrates the opposite process. He said, an almost perfect relationship with his father was the earthly root of all of his wisdom. From his own father, he said he first learned that fatherhood must be at the core of the universe. He was thus prepared in an an unusual way to teach the religion in which the relation of the father and the son was the most central. Something about the father that shapes our view of God. And when he says, when Jesus says we must say our father in heaven, he says our father, as in not just my father, not just Father, but our Father, and that's the unifying call for the body of Christ to be united. When we pray, when we lift up our prayer requests, it's not just me, it's not just I, it's we as a whole. Some of the greatest prayers in the Bible, I'm thinking like, in, in, especially in Daniel, where Daniel includes himself in the, the nation's rebellion, and he says, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses, and there's not one marked sin recorded for Daniel but yet he still includes himself in that. It's our Father. 
Jesus is one of Jesus' last prayers in John chapter 17. He prays that there may be unity among the believers. He prays first for himself, he prays for his 12 disciples, and then he prays for all believers. We need to have unity in the church. And then he says, you know, our Father in heaven. And heaven is that ethereal place, isn't it? It's that place that, where, where only a few have been able to just witness and, and had, a, had a keyhole uh, image of. We see Isaiah has a throne room experience, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then John later on in Revelation on the island of Patmos. We, they have this throne room vision of who God is. It's our Father in heaven. So if we were to address him, if Jesus is saying we are to address our heavenly, uh, God is our heavenly father. He said to first start out by talking to the father about the father. That's how we pray. We talk to the father about the father. So how does he do that? He says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is like a strange word. I had to look it up in the dictionary to make sure it was there. And I have this dictionary, which is, it's huge. It's like from 1907. And this is its definition of Hallowed. It says, to devote to holy or religious uses, to consecrate, to reverence as sacred, or to set apart. Um, I know there's, there's, you have dishes in your house that are hallowed or set apart, right? So those dishes that your grandma gave to you at, at your wedding, and you put them up in the cabinet with the glass counters, and you only pull those out for Thanksgiving, for special meals, for Christmas dinners, those are the hallowed plates. Those are the set-apart only for specific uses. That is how Jesus, that's how God's name is to be. We are to keep his name as holy. His name is holy. The Jewish scribes had a way of doing that practically as they copied the text. They didn't have coffee machines, so what would they do? They have to copy out the text. Every time they came to the hallowed name of God, Yahweh God, they would have to go cleanse the pen and then they have to go take a bath. Every time they were to copy that scripture. So there they are. That was their way of keeping those names holy, to keep it set apart. And names carry importance, right? Whenever I see a Jeremy on TV, I'm like, you better represent the Jeremys because I'm a Jeremy, you're a Jeremy, and we represent. Like, there's something special in a name, especially in the Old Testament times. There's something special in that. There's something, I want all the Jeremys to represent a good character, integrity, all those things. Names are important. They're linked to our character Jacob was born Jacob. His name meant heel snatcher. God says, no longer will you call you Jacob, but I'm gonna call you Israel, governed by God. God would change Abram's name to Abraham. He would change Sarai's name to Sarah. He would change Saul to Paul, and then later on, Simon to Peter. Because God was speaking something into their character, and he was changing their name. In our heaven... In Revelation, it talks about this new names that we will get. It says, and we will give, in Revelation 2.17, and we will give, uh, sorry, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. God has a name that aligns with your character and who you are. The name character of Yahweh is to be set apart from any other God, any other spiritual being. His name is lifted up. Your name, that, that your name um, quote it, in the Old Testament is used uh, over 119 times. Let me give you a few examples. In, in 2 Samuel 7, we have, um, says, so let your name be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. 2 Samuel 22 says, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Psalm 22 says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Psalm 54, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David. He says, Is, is David not hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Psalm 63, I will thus bless you while I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. 
David, and through the Psalms, he's linking name to character. We don't worship a name, we worship God's character and who he is. And later on in the New Testament, Jesus wouldn't give a blank uh, blank check to us when he says this in John 14, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that you will do. And the Father will be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That wasn't a blank check. That was if you call upon the will, you call upon God to do something, he will do it within his character. If we ask something in the character of God, he will do it. The father-son relationship is modeled just after that prayer. Look at me to, with, with me to Luke chapter 11, verse nine through 13. He's gonna speak on the importance of a father-son relationship, a father-child relationship. Verse nine says, so I say to you, and I will be given to you, So I say, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he also give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for for an egg, will will you offer him a scorpion? If you then, speaking of the earthly fathers, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask? I was asking in the character of God. So we talk then to the Father about his kingdom. After talking to him about him, we then talk to the Father about his kingdom. And he says this, Jesus said, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And that's where this message has kind of been brewing on my heart, and maybe it's, just something, maybe it's just something I needed to hear. Maybe I needed to preach to myself. These last few weeks, months, they've been tough. There's been a number of situations in, in, in my life that just led me to just drop to my knees in prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. As I'm looking around, Lord, teach me to pray. I prayed for the recall vote that didn't, that didn't go through. Begin to feel anxious and concerned and worried for the future about what would happen if, if that wasn't, if, 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 well, if our outcome is what it is now. Begin to look around at the kingdom of now, the kingdom around us, and, and, it's, and it's, it's frightening, honestly. A year ago, I, I would have been thought that it'd be a conspiracy theory because I thought that someday there'd be vaccine passports and mandates. I thought that's coming down the line a year ago, but here we are, and that's slowly becoming reality. They're talking about now a digital currency in the next two years that will no longer have paper, that everyone will have a digital currency. And that lines right up with what we read in the book of Revelation. So I love the lessons that God has been teaching me through archery, and he can, and he does. So I got a little proud, I got a little boastful my first couple weeks of archery. You see, I went from a grouping, you know, at 20 yards of about a, a dinner plate, and I got them down to about an inch and a half. And a grouping's when you shoot multiple arrows at a target, and they start getting closer. That means that you're getting accurate, you're like, you're working your skills. Well, I was getting really good, I started sending pictures to my friends, like, look, look how, look how good I'm doing, look at this, is awesome. They're like, oh yeah, good job, wow, you're really, you're really getting this. And then one night, there I am practicing in the backyard, and uh, I got lined up, I'm looking at my, through my scope, and it's, it's so compound bows, have a, they have a little peep sight that's on the string. And then, and then next, you have the scope, or the, the, um, the scope with the little target pins, all right? And you wanna get your peep, and you wanna aim it at the target pins onto the target. Okay, so that's kind of the way it lines up. And I lined up for the shot, had it right over the target, and all of a sudden I was like, my body just did this like, this like jitters. I was like, what was that? And my arrow actually went off and missed the target uh, into, into the wall. <laughs> I was like, what was that? Where did that come from? I mean, I've been really accurate. That was weird. So a few more shots, and it's like my body is preparing for this arrow to be released, and it, and it just tightens up. I was like, what? 
what in the world's happening? Like I've got, a, I've got my, my pin on my target and all of a sudden my body has this movement. It's like I can't control. I'm like, what in the world's going on? So I went down to Central Coast Archery and uh, Scott was in there and I walk in the door and no one else was in the shop and Scott and another worker were there. And I'm like, Scott, I got target panic. He's like, oh no, you got target panic. He got, oh, oh we're, target, everybody gets the target panic. Everybody knows about this target panic thing. Like, I'm like, well, I, I didn't know about it. Tell me about this. Like, oh yeah, it's like when your body kind of was reacting to the shot before it happens and you start to get messed up and everybody deals with it, everybody. I was like, okay, well, you've got to help me overcome this because I don't want to have target practice, target anxiety. This is not okay. So one of the things that Scott recommended was this, he said, what you're probably focused on, we can only, our eyes can only focus on one thing, okay? He said, one of the things that you wanna work on is not focusing on the pins that are right in front of you, you wanna focus on the target and see the target through those pins that are right next to you, right there. And he talked about how, you know, he, he worked through his target anxiety, he was coached through it, and he was working on a target at 50 yards, and he said, this guy was like, just, just, just concentrate on the target, you'll get it. And sure enough, Scott said at 50 yards, he Robin Hooded an egg. Robin, ro- yeah, Robin Hooded an egg. Or, <laughs> egg. Robin Hooded an arrow. So he shot one arrow into the back of the other arrow at 50 yards because he was focused on that target. It's kind of like mountain biking or biking anything. If you see a rock in the middle of the path, and you start focusing on that rock, you're gonna hit the rock. That's just what happens. I don't know why it works that way, but that is. And so we need, and Jesus is reminding us, your kingdom come. We need to focus on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But how do we do that? Because Jesus preached a lot about the kingdom that had arrived. And it was different than what his disciples or Jews were waiting for at that time. You see, the kingdom, he, he, Jesus would say, the kingdom has come near to you. The kingdom has come upon you. But it doesn't, you look around, you're like, that doesn't seem to be totally the way it is. I don't understand. And that's where we live in. We live in this tension of the, the already and not yet. The already and not yet. It's a theological tension. It says, by faith in Christ, all of these spiritual blessings are ours already, but the full enjoyment of these blessings is not yet ours. This is the life of faith, the assurance of things hoped for in the future and the convictions of things not yet seen in the present. From Hebrews 11. This is life between the times. So Satan tempted Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth when Jesus was being tempted out in the wilderness, how could Satan say, all these kingdoms I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me? Jesus didn't say, that's not theologically true. Actually, Jesus just outright rejected that and he said, away from me, I will worship the Lord God alone. You see, Satan has a kingdom. There are kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of, of now, but yet God has the kingdom of already and not yet. Let's illustrate this with Daniel chapter five. Belshazzar was the grandson of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the one that had this great image that he couldn't explain that Daniel came later and explained the head of, the head of gold, the arms and the chest of silver and bronze, and then uh, clay mixed with iron. He had that vision, and so Nebuchadnezzar kind of took that and ran, right? He made that big golden statue that everyone was to worship, and then uh, the, the three other guys didn't want to worship that. Well, that was Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was headed down to his son uh, and his grandson. They, co- they were co-regents. And God had already weighed that kingdom in the balance. God already knew. So there was a feast that Belshazzar was gonna throw, and that was in the kingdom of Babylon, Babylon was a magnificent city. The walls surrounding Babylon were 17 miles long. The walls surrounding Babylon were 22 feet thick. You could race four chariots on these walls. The walls of Babylon were 90 feet tall with towers that went another 100 feet on top of that. Babylon was so magnificent. Babylon had storage of food that could outlast their people years and years. They had the river Euphrates that flowed right through the center of Babylon that gave them endless supply of water. They were good. So as they are being surrounded by the Medo-Persian Empire, Belshazzar's like, we're gonna have a feast. We're gonna outlive this. 
We're good. Our kingdom's forever. We're good. And so what, he, what does he do? He calls for the golden instruments from the temple to come and be used at his feast. And it was then that up on the wall, a hand of God came and wrote on the wall. Wrote something that he didn't understand. Wrote something that made his knees knock and he like just lost strength. He couldn't do anything. This is Belshazzar. And he couldn't do anything. So he began to call for all the, the magicians, the soothsayers. They couldn't say anything until Daniel was brought forth. And Daniel said, this is what it says. Many, many tekel ufarsin. You've been weighed in the balance. You've been found wanting. Your kingdom has been weighed and has been found wanting. Why do I bring that up? Because that was one kingdom that was on the verge of collapse. You see, they didn't know that that very night the Euphrates River had been diverted into a marsh and that the Medo-Persian Empire had entered into where the Euphrates River flowed and they captured that city that night. As he's feasting and think he's all good, that the city was sacked and he, and he was killed, the, 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 um, the king. And I bring that up because in Luke chapter 11, we find this interesting story that's linked. And an interesting story because it's not, we don't understand the, con- the context to it totally. So let's check it out. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23, it says, and he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. Note that. Note that the multitudes marvel. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought him for a sign from heaven, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to him, every kingdom divided itself against itself is brought into desolation, and a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, to whom do your sons cast them out? Speaking of the Jewish exorcists. Verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is relating this to the kingdom of Babylon that was with the finger of God, the writing was on the wall. This is what we don't understand. This is what I've learned these last few weeks about the context around this. Every time in the Bible when Jesus casts out a mute spirit, the crowds marvel. Why do the crowds marvel so much at this? There were other demons that were exorcised. There were Jewish exorcists at the time that would cast out demons, and their way of doing it was they had to find out the name of this of this. Of this spirit being living inside this person. They would use that name in the incantations in different sayings and using Proverbs or um, Psalms to cast this demon out, to in a way wrestle it out. But now Jesus comes on the scene and he is able to cast out the mute spirits. Why is that different? Because no one else could do that. Jesus didn't say you have to find out the name to then call it out. Jesus just simply, simply said, get out. The writing was on the wall that their kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of now, is being judged with the finger of God. Jesus said, I cast these demons out. So we are living in this already but not yet. Jesus has done that, but it's not fully lived out. So then later, we see that Jesus talks about, he said, we talk to the Father about the will for his kingdom. Your will be done, just like it is in heaven. He says, your will, he wills in heaven, and it's done. In our prayers, we must join with the character of what he wills to do. Even Jesus wrestled with that in the garden. He said, if, if it is your will, take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Jesus says, not will your, will be, or your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The visible and the invisible realms, the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdom of heaven, these are where God reigns. It's, it's there, it's a perfect harmony of what happens in heaven to what God wills in heaven. And that's what he's calling us to ask for, for prayer. You see, the more I focus in on those pins in the sight when I'm trying to shoot my archery, the more I focus on those things that are right there, the less I'll hit my target. But when my aim becomes my target and I just look through those things at the lens of the scope, I'll hit my target. 
We can only focus on one thing, so where is our focus this morning? Is it on the kingdoms of now? Or is it the kingdom of heaven? Daniel chapter seven, this is my last, and I'm sorry I'm over time. Daniel chapter seven, it says this. This is Daniel's vision. He said, I was watching the night visions. One, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then he said to him, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That's why Jesus called himself the son of man in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. If I could summarize this first section of, the, or, of this prayer, I would say this. Let, let the Lord be the Lord. Let God be God. In our prayers, in our, in our will for what happens in and around us, let God be God. Let's pray. Lord, the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms of now are setting themselves against you, Lord. And I'm thankful to have your word in front of us that tells us the beginning from the end, tells us, tells us that these nations have been judged by the finger of God. And someday you will come down with your full power, not just the finger of God, you will come down with might, Lord, and the kingdoms of this earth will crumble and you will set up an everlasting kingdom, Lord. Lord, help us to keep our sights, our vision set on that future kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with us.
Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the Keep us focused on, on the kingdom of heaven, Lord. As we leave here today, I just ask you to just keep the kingdom of heaven in the forefront of our thoughts and our minds and, and just the hope that we're aiming for, that target, Lord. And so... Um, Thank you, Jesus, for this day. Thank you for, for what you're doing in our church, in our midst, in our hearts, Lord. And uh, I just think right now we should, um, I think it's a, we should recite the Lord's Prayer together. I think that's a good way to end the service this morning. So you could, I actually want to look it up. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Because everybody's got like a different, you know, the, I, I feel like growing up Christian, like I, I, I like meld tons of different translations together when I say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Anyways. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we forgive us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you all for being here. Please come forward for prayer. Our prayer teams are waiting in discreet locations to pray for your every need that you want to bring before the Father today. So, but we'll see you guys next week. If you have any, if you're new here, don't forget to stop by the info center on your way out and um, get plugged in and see what's going on here. <laughs>